This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Hi, everybody. Welcome back. You know what? If you haven't gotten an invite yet to join Clubhouse, well, you know, I don't need to tell you because it is the hottest social networking app where once you walk into the front door of the app, you can peek down a myriad of hallways and step into any one of a number of audio chat rooms, all with themes and in many cases, major names on the horn. And what are we talking about? Drake, Chris Rock, Elon Musk. Oprah and Gail, that all stopped by to chat in Clubhouse. And if you're lucky and happen to enter the room that any one of them is in, you can press this raise your hand button and ask a question. Clubhouse, it's kind of cool. You know, it was founded by these two guys, Paul Davison and Rohan Seth. But task number one when you're starting any company is to hunt around for seed money, an investor maybe who believes in your vision and has the cash to help you. Those people are called angels. Enter the man with a very big halo in Silicon Valley, Raul Voron. He's the founder and CEO of Superhuman, an avid startup investor himself. And this is a guy who on any given day is ready to do what we all need to learn how to do. Step into the ring and face down Goliath. So what powers all of his superhuman strength? Let's bring him in. Raul, welcome to Everyone Talks to Liz. Awesome. Thank you for having me. Thrilled to have you here. I want to be in a room with Kevin Hart. I mean, Clubhouse is just so much fun. And what I love about it is you can just hunt down each hallway and listen and hear and glean the best from the best. Absolutely. Uh, You know, what I say to people who ask me is, uh, imagine a personal hero of yours is talking on Clubhouse. You can then casually drop into that room. You can see what's happening. You have a thought, you hit raise a hand. And now you're talking to your personal hero and they will talk right back. Now that sounds extreme, but it happens every day on Clubhouse. I think Twitter can give you a little bit of that, but with Clubhouse, it feels authentic and intimate. Well, yeah. And I've been on many business-focused ones, which I find really interesting. I mean, John Ledger, uh, T-Mobile, the guy who always wore the magenta. He's a friend, but he's just one of the most inspiring business leaders And he's always on Clubhouse. I'm always getting these flashes saying, John Ledger just entered a room and I want to hear what he's thinking. And what's so beautiful about it is a lot of blue flame thinkers enter these rooms and you can just listen to them and learn from them. Uh, But I'm really fascinated by the fact that you probably heard about this in its very early stages. What was it about it that, kind of hit your brain where you said, I think I want to invest in this. You know, we looked at Clubhouse before it was even called Clubhouse. <laughs> I believe it was called, uh, I want to say talk show or something or something along those lines. Uh, and this this was an investment I did with uh, a chap, Todd Bold- Goldberger. He's my investment partner out of an angel fund that we have. And 
when you raise an angel fund, much like when you're uh, raising capital for a company, you go out and you you typically raise it from investors. Now, ours happens to be raised from other angel investors, including a lot of our own personal money. Uh, and, and so it's, it's like having a collection of angel investors invest in your company. And so when you do that, you need just as strong a story as when you're raising for a private company. And so we had a thesis. We had a thesis around viral uh, uh, software as a service. We had a thesis around productivity, as in my own company, Superhuman. Uh, we had a thesis around creator tools. And we also, interestingly enough, had a thesis around audio. We believed that audio was a very underdeveloped area of the technology industry that was absolutely ripe for potential. So ripe for potential that we thought we could even witness the birth of another major social network, something at least as big as Snapchat, if not as big as Facebook. And so we, we had that thesis even prior to meeting uh, the, the Clubhouse team. And we met with a bunch of companies, and as is the case when you're normally angel investing, um, you know most founders uh, don't make the cuts, or most ideas aren't quite good enough. Yeah. But when we met with Paul and Rohan, who are the two founders of Clubhouse, both Todd and myself were an instant yes. You know, I've been building companies uh, now basically forever. The the only other job I've ever had is when I sold my last company to LinkedIn, and so I think I have a pretty uh, strong compass for what makes for an incredible founder. And Paul and, and Rohan just, just ticked those boxes, uh, every single box you could imagine. He was able to talk about the history of social networks, the history of audio, uh, the way, the, the nuanced ways that social networks work and, and how you would build demand and, and how you would create this, this, this almost multi-sided marketplace so that whenever anybody turns up onto Clubhouse, something interesting is going on. That's really, really hard to pull off. And he had good, exam uh, good answers for all of those things. Uh, and so Todd and I were just an, an instant yes. To me, that's fascinating because not only did you look at the jockeys, which would be Seth and Paul, but you looked at the horse and you were already on board. You already were mounted on that horse because you were looking at audio, which at, in this day and age, everybody's talking about video. But we're on a podcast now and we have become wildly popular. Uh, we've past our 100th episode and people just love it because it gives them a chance to do a deep dive into something without the distraction of all the bells and whistles. But, you know, you've got your hands in many cookie jars in Silicon Valley. How does a kid from the United Kingdom get to the Valley? Talk about your journey. Well, this was when I started my, my last company, Reportive. And I remember moving to California after a certain business trip very early in the history of that company. Uh, this was probably several months into Reportive, so we're talking 2010. I'd spent a week in San Francisco, and we only had meetings arranged for Monday. On Monday, we got introductions that led to a full calendar for Tuesday, which led to back-to-back -back meetings for Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. So you can imagine my calendar exponentially filling up. <laughs> it's blowing up. So, I mean, like, seriously, it's just insane. And we got more done in that one week of being on the ground in San Francisco than in the prior three months of emailing from Cambridge, England, uh, which is where I went to school. Now, I remember sitting down on Friday afternoon, exhausted. I look at uh, my co-founder, Martin, in the eye, and I say, you know, look, we have to be here. This is obviously the best place in the world to build this company. 
And this is how you know when you have the right co-founder. Without skipping a beat, he said, absolutely, let's move. Uh, and we then started the surprisingly hard work of completely shifting company, uh, country, not just for me, but for him and our other co-founder and then the people we'd hired. I think all in, I've moved 20, 25 plus people from England alone to here. Uh, but that was the story of how we got here. Reportive. Let's not just throw that one out. You've got to tell us about starting that company because you did eventually sell it to LinkedIn, as you mentioned. I mean, how did that happen? I, I need to know this beginning of Reportive because that's what we talk about here. Beginnings are not easy. Middles are not easy. And two-thirds of the way through, sometimes these things blow up. Almost all the time. And Reported was actually attempt number seven for me to start a company. Uh-huh. Now, at the time, I was doing a PhD. And I started a PhD because I thought it would be a good way to start a company. Uh, it turns out that it's a, a terrible way to start a company in the best <laughs> ways. In fact, I mean, this is going to sound obvious, but just go and start a company. Now, I stopped when I understood that, when I realized that I wasn't doing what I was best at. And uh, I actually stopped after my first year, so it was rather efficient. Uh, I even got a certificate for that time. I think I might be the only person in the history of the University of Cambridge to have this. I have a certificate of diligent studies. I'm not quite sure what one is or whether the university has ever given one out previously, but I've got one. Uh, Anyway, so I got that for the year of my PhD. and, And when I left, I started to run Cambridge University Entrepreneurs. Now, this is the part of the university that helps staff and students create companies. And my job for that involved a lot of fundraising. I had to go to angels, to tech companies, to venture capital firms, and ask them for money that I could then give to new startups coming out of the university. But I was just 23 years old. I had no formal training, no manager actually to train me. And so I had to learn the art of fundraising from scratch. And this was no ordinary fundraising. This was not-for-profit fundraising. We weren't trading equity. We were literally giving money away. And anyone who's ever had to do any uh, alumni calls or anything like that knows how hard not-for-profit fundraising is. So I had to get good fast. And I'm not really a people-oriented person. I I often struggle to remember basic facts about people, like their name or, or where I met them. And then one day in a shower, as as these insights so often happened, I I quite literally just imagined Reportive. Wouldn't it be amazing if everything you wanted to know about your contacts was right there in your inbox? Their name, where they work, their job, even links to their social profiles and recent tweets. If so, that could literally make you brilliant at your job. Uh, So as you can see, I I built it for me. I had no idea that millions of other people would also want it. Wait, wait, Uh, let let me interrupt you. So you know, let our listeners really understand what this is. So I have an entire contact uh, window. You're saying separate from that. Yeah, the idea was integration. So imagine you receive an email from somebody Mm -hmm. and, uh, you know, let's let's say I email you and, uh, you know, you haven't come across me before. You, You don't know who I am or what I do. Before Reportive, that's it, you know, kind of dead in the water. You can, of course, Google me, but you get so many emails from so many different people that why would you ever do that for everybody? Like, that's just not rational. 
what Reportive did was do all of that work for you automatically. So let's say a founder emails you, right there in your inbox, you could see everything about them. Uh, it will tell you their company name. It would give you their recent tweets. Uh, it would let you quickly get a sense for how relevant this person is to what you're doing. So you know whether you're in media or you're hiring or you're selling or you're recruiting or you're really doing any kind of people-oriented business of any kind, it was tremendously useful. Mm -hmm. And it was that idea of people-oriented business that, uh, and I totally hadn't anticipated this happening, we just sort of managed to quietly aggregate all of LinkedIn's daily active users onto our platform. You know, we were the, the first Gmail plugin to scale to millions of users. And those millions of users we had just so happened wow. to be LinkedIn's daily active users. And, and so it was one of those matches that was made in heaven. Is that how LinkedIn focused upon you? Is that how you got their attention? Sort of. I think the first run-in we had with LinkedIn was at Y Combinator Demo Day. Mm. Uh, so for folks that don't know, Y Combinator is the, the preeminent early stage, like super early stage pre-seed investor here in Silicon Valley. And they have this thing called Demo Day where you present your, uh, your company and most of the prominent investors from around Silicon Valley come and watch. Now also the corp dev uh, leaders from the major tech companies come and watch as well. And Emily, who ran Corp Dev at LinkedIn at the time, was there. Uh, she now runs Corp Dev at Coinbase and said, you know, this is really interesting. We'd, we'd love to have you come in and chat. Uh, now, now what's, what's funny is many founders at that point think, oh, ooh, exciting, you know, LinkedIn wants to buy me. But that, that's really not how it works. Uh, th these things are, are years in the making. And so I go in and I have a chat and they're like, well, you know, we just want to stay close to the company. We want to learn from you. We also are happy to support you. Uh, and, and so began a fairly, you know, fairly long, I would say six month negotiation to uh, not, not to sell the company, but to get access to the LinkedIn API. Uh, so at the time, LinkedIn had an API that I think only 20 companies had access to that would let you go from an email address to the full LinkedIn profile. Uh -huh. And so imagine the world where you, you get an email and then boom, right there in your email client is the LinkedIn profile, obviously game changing. Uh, and, you know, we, we both got to know each other. They were very careful with this profile, but very easy to abuse if it's uh, oh, API rather very easy to abuse if it's in the hands of the wrong partner. And we, we just both wanted to very carefully vet each other out, but we developed enough mutual trust uh, where they did give us access to this API, it made our product that much better. Reportive just kept on growing. And then about 18 months into the life of the company, this was a very short-lived company, 18 months from start to finish, uh, we ended up selling to LinkedIn. Oh, and this is a company whose idea you came up with in the shower, which dovetails to Superhuman. An idea you came up with stuck in traffic I mean, you've got to be the guy that I want to be stuck in an elevator with for a long time because we could come up with a multi-billion dollar idea together. <laughs> Tell me about the traffic story. Well, if I remember this particular, I've, I've had so many ideas in traffic. So um, <laughs> this, this is what happens, by the way, when you work in, San uh, work in Mountain View, but live in San Francisco, which uh, is an oh, hour traffic. commute on Horrible. a good day. I know. So I remember on the way back, from work one day, 
in traffic and uh, I had a, some crazy deadline I was working on. So I wasn't driving that day. I was actually in an Uber and this would have been in about 2014. So it was really Uber's heyday. It was, you know, the new kid on the block. Uh, it, it, I think it was obvious to everyone here in Silicon Valley, it was going to be the defining company of our generation. Mm-hmm. And thinking, isn't this incredible? I'm arbitraging, living in a cool hip place like San Francisco. I get to work in a Silicon Valley company down uh, in Mountain View, and I'm getting back time. For the amount of money that I'm spending on Uber, I'm getting back this sacred time. Right. You know how the saying goes, you can always make more money, but you'll never you get back more, more time. time. Right. Exactly. And so I remember thinking, you know, what, whatever I do next, it should have that level of impact. What are the things that we spend our time on? And it turns out the thing that we do more than anyone else is, uh, anything else rather, is in fact sleep. Like we, we ideally are getting eight hours of sleep a day. Uh, and this is a very near and dear topic to my heart because I actually suffer from sleep apnea. So I, I track my sleep really closely. But I also knew that I didn't know that much about sleep and I, I didn't know how to impact it. Now, it turns out that the next thing down the list is actually email. There are 1 billion professionals in the world. And on average, we spend three hours a day just reading and writing email. Mm. And the tools that we have to do this are one size fits all tools. We're either using Gmail or we're using Outlook. And the crazy part is it doesn't matter whether you receive five emails a day or you receive 5,000 emails a day. It doesn't matter whether you send 10 or you send 200. Those pieces of software are still the same. Right. And so I thought, well, this, this is madness. Why don't we build the fastest email experience in the world? So we imagined an email experience that is blazingly fast, where searches are instantaneous, where every interaction takes place in 100 milliseconds or less. You know, an email experience where you never had to touch the mouse, where you could do everything from the keyboard. You could fly through your inbox. And for anyone who remembers what planes are, an email experience that just worked offline. So you could be productive anywhere, like I was when I was in that car. Uh, and of course, an email experience that had the best plugins built in natively. So all the stuff that we did were re- with Reportive, but also all the other plugins that came afterwards, all of that built into one thing. We're not done yet. We'll be back in a moment. Hey, folks, it's your man, Keyshawn Johnson, here to talk about Angie formerly known as Angie's List, your go-to home services, marketplace for getting all your jobs done well. Now you might be wondering, what exactly is Angie? Well, let me tell you, it's the nation's largest home services marketplace, connecting over 150 million homeowners with skilled professionals to tackle any project, big or small. As a homeowner myself, I always have things I want to work on for my house whether it's general home renovations or fun projects like putting in a pool. With over 200,000 pros in their network, Angie makes it a breeze to research, compare, and hire pros, ensuring every job is done well. Whether you're fixing a leaky faucet or planning a full kitchen renovation, Angie's got your back. And get this, folks. Angie's pros aren't just any old contractors. They're your neighbors, often running small businesses right in your community. Plus. They've been rated and reviewed by others in your area. So you know you're getting quality service. So why stress over home projects when you can turn to Angie? 
from finding the best price to scheduling a pro at your convenience. Angie's got you covered every step of the way. So get started today at Angie.com. That's Angie.com or download the app today to get started on getting all your jobs done. That's Angie, your trusted ally in home services. Really kind of disrupting basic email out there and the behemoths in that region, Microsoft Outlook, Gmail, obviously Google's. They didn't try and kill you or squish you. No, in, in fact, they are both incredibly excited about what we're doing. And to understand why, I think we only have yeah, to... Yeah, because they want to steal it. <laughs> Ste- oh, Make sure uh, they I- don't steal it. And and if you need me, Raul, I'll come over there and kick some pail, okay? <laughs> I will make sure they don't steal it, and I will definitely <laughs> take you up on, on the pail kicking if necessary. Uh, <laughs> what they really want is the innovation to happen on their platform. And so... Uh, yeah, I mean, and th- this is just sort of general business advice for, for any any founder who might be listening out there. If you're on a platform and, and someone's asking you about platform risk, uh, well, we'll go talk to the other platform. And, and I guarantee you, they will want you to build on that platform. And both platforms or all the platforms you're working on will want the innovation primarily to be happening where they are, because that actually entrenches their customers. And so ideally, you want to be Switzerland. You want to, you know, take no sides, help everybody. Um, and stay as neutral as you can. Open source, in a way. That would be one way to do it, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you mentioned that Reportive was the seventh <laughs> attempt. <laughs> this is what I think a lot of our listeners are, are really listening for. And that is, how did he keep the positive optimism of, let me try again, let me try again, after the second one, or the third, or the fifth? How did you do that? Well, that isn't easy. I mean, look, I'm not going to lie that there were, there were lots of ups and downs in that period, definite bouts of actual depression. Um, I don't think I'm going to say much that hasn't already been said, but you know, maybe what, what would be useful is, is just to repeat some of the things that are going to sound obvious, but when we're in the throes of a hard time, we, we might forget. You know, it's, it's really important, for example to surround ourselves with people who pick us up when when things are hard, whether that's a, a loved one or family or co-founders, um, or if you're fortunate enough to have raised investments, you know, a really supportive board. Because this journey is really, really hard. And companies obviously fail. I've, I've had many failures myself. And I, I remember one in particular, and, and this is going to be a testament to family. I had been working uh, actually on a, a video game company concept. Uh, I, I used to be a game designer back in the day. And we were going to make a, a trading card game, uh, kind of like Magic the Gathering or Pokemon, or um, you know, there are more, similar, uh, more, more recent examples of that, but based on a very well-known series of fantasy books. And uh, I put a year of my life into this thing, and you know, I'd I'd gone to the fantasy conventions, met the author, we'd become pretty good friends, uh, we'd inked a deal, I'd negotiated with his agent, uh, and you know, this thing was all going to happen. Right, you're this close, super close, right? And I, I think you can probably tell where the story's going to go. And then at the very, very last minute, he's like, "Actually, I I kind of don't want to do this. I'm just having second thoughts. This is a year in, by the way, oh. uh, and you know, we're." You know, I want to stay friends, but let, let's let's not try and turn um, my baby into a card game. And uh, you know, this was obviously devastating for me. Like my 
my whole whole everything had just sort of been been taken away from underneath me. And it was a failure after a series of failures. I, I think I was about 25, 26 at the time. I had uh, left my PhD one year into it. So I probably left my PhD when I was 21, 22. And so I had four years of trying to get something off the ground during which, by the way, I made zero dollars, like almost nothing. And, uh, you know, I, I went to um, a good school. I went to Cambridge. So like my, my cohort of peers, the people who, you know, I couldn't but inevitably compare myself to that, you know, they were often Goldman Sachs or, or McKinsey and like probably buying their second home by that point. You know, it was, it was just like a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm not to say that that's that's the measure of success, but uh, and it certainly shouldn't be. But it's it's very easy to fall into that trap of comparing yourself to to your friends and to your peers. So I was at home, and I was uh, at home meeting my parents' home, and I was super depressed. I, I think I was playing Mario on on the uh, on the Wii, which had just come out. Um, and because that's and, what you do when you're depressed. That's the big picker upper. Just, just got to find a really happy game and, and play it. And, you know, my, my mom walked into the room and, and she was like, you know, it, it kills me to see you so sad. Like, we, we have to figure out a way to pick you up out of this. And I said, well, I don't know what to do. You know, I, I, I'm like three, four concepts in that it's just not working out. Um, I don't know what to do. And she said, well, my advice to you is just pick something you're good at. Um, I don't know what that is. But you know what that is. Just think about it and pick something you're really good at. Well, you don't necessarily have to depend on other people like, like you did in, in this last venture. And, you know, I, I just let that sort of marinate for a few days. And then I went back to Cambridge uh, where I was living. Um, and as, as, as luck would have, I don't know whether it was what she said, but a few days later, I had the idea for Reportive. I was like, well, you know, I, I'm, I'm really good at programming. Uh, I'm really good at marketing. I'm, I'm really good at design. I'm really good at all these things. What is a thing that I could build literally by myself? No dependencies. I just sit down, write the code, and six weeks later, I'm done. Uh, and, and reportive was the answer. You see, everybody, you, you heard this, right? I mean, he had a terrible failure on the back of like three or four other failures. And then you're surrounded by people. I mean, I've been in this position where, listen, I, I went to Beverly Hills High School. And there I was working at 4 a.m. at Channel 2 News because I wanted to be a news reporter someday and I would deliver newspapers around the building. Whereas some of the kids I had gone to high school with were working as bankers and lawyers. I'm thinking, oh God, but follow that passion and just don't ever say die, right? I mean, isn't that it? You just say, forget it. I'm not giving up. It is. And we've turned this into our rubric for our angel investments. Uh, What I realized I have and what it actually turns out every founder needs is an exceptionally high level of grit. Or if you want to use the uh, more of a psychological term, goal-oriented persistence. I like grit better. I like grit better. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> totally. Um, it's, you know, it's an interesting one. You can, you can break it down. Grits, you can define as passion and perseverance. And you, you know, we have a, a set of questions that are designed to elicit whether or not uh, folks have that. And it's once you know what you're looking for, it's fairly easy to spot. Now, now that you've found success and you're still going very, very strong. So something tells me you'll have about 38,000 other ideas ahead of you. 
something that was brought to our attention. You have two loves in life, luxury car drag racing and Dungeons and Dragons. Okay, so well, those seem like total opposites. Explain, please. <laughs> okay. Uh, so with the, with the luxury car stuff, um, this was a little, I got into it with a little bit of retail therapy. So I'd, I'd sold my company to LinkedIn and, uh, you know, we, as I already mentioned, I had north of an hour commute back and forth. And I just remember thinking, oh gosh, I have to make this more fun somehow. Um, how do I do that? And uh, I remember uh, many years prior, back when I was in Cambridge, I remember seeing the first Iron Man movie in the theaters. And uh, I, I think it was the first movie, but there's that scene where Tony Stark rocks up in an Audi R8. And I'm just like, yeah. oh my God, that is a sexy car. Like just the, the, the combination of form and function and its heritage in Le Mans racing. I mean, there's just so much about it that is so viscerally appealing. And so that, that was my first foray in, into, uh, into very, very fast cars. And so I, I got myself as, as sort of like a, a sort of pat on my own back, you know, well done, keep going kind of thing. Um, and then when I left LinkedIn, as, as silly as this is going to sound, that car felt too slow. I was like, I need, this is why this is a dangerous hobby. I don't really do this anymore because th there is really no end to this. But I was like, you know what, 530 horsepower or whatever that car was, it's just not fast enough. I, I need the next level up. Uh, and so I traded it in. I got a, a Lamborghini Gallardo. And this thing is it's just crazy wicked fast. And it's not just fast, it's also visceral. You know, that there is a, a speed. It's different for everybody. For me, it's about 135, 145 miles per hour. Does your what, mother you... know you're doing this? Oh, she, she knows. Uh, she also knows I'm past it, which I think is, is what okay. makes it okay. But yeah. there is a speed where um, you're so in flow that you don't even notice time pass. You're so connected to the road. You're so engaged. You're so alive that you feel every bump on the road, you... Uh, smell burning rubber, the, every oral input, you're sort of computing uh, all at once. And uh, you know, this is the thing that every game designer strives to achieve, but I, I was able to achieve it through racing. Um, and so that, that was really, really my love of racing. And, and this, most of it was uh, in the one year that I took off after LinkedIn and before starting Superhuman. And looking back, I'm like, oh my gosh, I was so stupid. Like, it's so, so dangerous to do what I did, uh, mountain and canyon racing. Um, I, I would never do it again. Uh, I, th I think it's, it's, kind of, it's kind of personality though. Like, I, I'm, I'm an entrepreneur. I have at every single juncture in my life taken maximum risk. Uh, and, you know, this is something for every board member to think about, every founder to reflect on. When you sell your company, you have suddenly taken away the th all the risk in your life. That's actually really dangerous. Now, in, in, in retrospect, I know, I, I just sort of, I felt myself looking for all the ways that I could to add risk back into my life. And I, I found it through uh, exceptionally fast driving. Mm -hmm. um, and not, not Dungeons and Dragons? <laughs> There's risk there too. <laughs> Dungeons and Dragons was, uh, it is a much more recent and active hobby. So I, I run a game every, every two weeks, uh, which, okay. which is tremendous fun. And this allows me to, uh, to practice my game design. 
and to keep it really sharp because at Superhuman, we build software like it's a game. Uh, it also allows me to practice key aspects of uh, you know, performance, of, which is so, so critical to being a CEO, whether that's narrative, whether it's storytelling, uh, even the silly accents that you do to play a character actually just make you better as a speaker and a, as a performer, which I think every CEO can benefit from. Well, now here I thought my son was making up all this stuff about why he should be allowed to play video games, but you just finally articulated. You know what? That <laughs> sold, sold on the creativity. Boy, I'll tell you something, Raul. You are going places, even though you're already there, you know, and isn't that part of it? Continue the climb. Never stop climbing. So great to hear your story. Congratulations, and please keep us posted. And uh, maybe I'll hear you in Clubhouse talking about how you were on Everyone Talks to Liz, and everybody should listen to it, because I'm telling you, this story is hugely valuable to anybody with a dream. Thank you so much. Thank you, Liz. See you in Clubhouse. Oh, yeah, absolutely, Raul Borja. Thank you very much. And as we sort of plow ahead, we're here in May. June is coming. It's summer, but we're going to continue these. So wherever you're driving and stuck in proverbial traffic, just like Raul was, just keep in mind, we are here for you. And these moments in this podcast should give you inspiration to reach out for your dreams. Grab them and never let go. That'll do it for us. I'll see you on Fox Business Monday through Friday, 3 p.m. Eastern on The Playing Counting. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Janice Dean, Fox News Senior Meteorologist. Be sure to subscribe to the Janice Dean Podcast at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to spread the sunshine.